Hello, and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. In our last episode, we spoke about the crippling power of shame and some of the ways we can better manage it in our day-to-day lives. A classic counter to shame is self-compassion, and we have the absolute pleasure of being joined today by a true expert on the subject, Dr. Chris Germer. Dr. Germer is a clinical psychologist, lecturer on psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, meditation practitioner, author, and teacher of mindfulness and compassion. He's also the, de- the co-developer of the Mindful Self-Compassion Program with Dr. Kristen Neff. This program combines the skills of mindfulness and self-compassion to enhance our capacity for emotional well-being. So, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Forrest. Great to have you, and we're really looking forward to it. And we already had a nice little chat right before we started recording, which was good. It kind of set the tone. So you've had a very long interest in both the science of psychology and the power of contemplative practice. Uh, a combination that is near and dear to both my heart and, of course, to Rex. Um, so where did that interest arise from? And could you share something of your background with people who may not be so familiar with your work? Oh, uh, where did the interest arise? This is the first time I've been asked that question, actually. <laughs> really? Well, fantastic, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, you know, I graduated from college in 1974, and, and mm. uh, transcendental meditation was really big in those days. And then in 75, I went to Germany and I learned TM. And I had a extraordinary peak experience, um, which I couldn't discuss with any teachers mm. in Germany at the time. Um, and so I went to India for a year. Uh, and basically explored the length and breadth of that country, talking with saints and sages and shamans and Ayurvedic Ayurvedic doctors and things all about meditation and contemplative practice. And Mm. it it really changed my life. And after that, I went back to India 12 times. But when I left India in 1977, I was convinced that I wanted to bring some of the uh, wisdom, contemplative Mm. wisdom of the East into Western psychotherapy. And after that, I went to graduate school Mm -hmm. and got a PhD in clinical psychology. So that's how it all began. I was impressed uh, first by my own experience through TM and then the extraordinary depth of uh, contemplative practice in India. Chris, how come you couldn't talk about your experience with your TM teachers in Germany? And what was it like to be with people that you would really consider to be saints or profound sages? Well, the reason I couldn't talk about it is because the t- the teachers of TM at the time didn't have very much experience themselves. Mm-hmm. When I did bring it up, they um, just kind of well, the first time I discussed that peak experience, person said, you're kidding. I said, no, yeah. and it was new to them. You know, Certainly new to me. <laughs> um, and then uh, meeting with a lot of the saints and sages in India, uh, well, you know, so I met people in the Buddhist tradition, Hindu tradition, Christian tradition, and it was uh, just profoundly moving. Uh, to mm. be with people who are who are functioning in a in a non-dual state, you know. Do you mind? Could you just define what you mean by people in a non-dual state? 
So uh, non-dual state, meaning uh, the sense of individual self is held so lightly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. doesn't really guide their behavior all that much. It's more, you know, the needs of people and the world and so forth. I just, I just remember her sort of leaning against the door frame while I was eating breakfast and just gazing with this extraordinary love at, you know, me. I, I was just a mm. guest, a visitor. Mm. And so this combination of spaciousness and love profoundly moved me. Mm. Yeah. And I thought, gosh, I want to live like this. Mm-hmm. This is a good thing for the world and it's a good thing for the person. It's a good thing. How do we do this? And then came back to the West and I learned, you know, I watched psychoanalysts battle with each other in conference, mm-hmm. fight with the behaviorists. And this was what we learned in graduate school. And I thought, oh my, we have a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, returning to that kind of psychological and therapeutic tradition, in a story on your website, uh, you describe an experience that you had in a therapeutic setting with a therapist, which was kind of your first um, penetrating moment of the application of self-compassion, which is a major theme inside of your work. And to me, it was a wonderful origin story as kind of a jumping off point for that sort of practice. So I was wondering if you could share it here. Yeah, so that uh, was written in a little article for the Psychotherapy Networker. And um, uh, Rich Simon had asked, what was one of the key experiences that really made you um, understand something fundamental about psychotherapy? And and this was Mm -hmm. early on. I was a first-year graduate student, and I had just started um, psychotherapy. In those days, to, to graduate... It was highly encouraged that you're also in therapy. You know, prior to that, it was required, then it was mm-hmm. encouraged. Now, I didn't think it's even encouraged as much in, mm-hmm. in um, clinical training. But at the time, that's what it was. And, um, and I was talking about my father and basically how he was absent most of my childhood. And I was talking about a particular event at a award ceremony, an athletic award ceremony, where you get like varsity letters and things back mm-hmm. in those days, in the late 60s. And, and I uh, got a letter and came back to the table and my father was gone. He was <clears throat> too tired, too stressed or whatever it was to be there. Wow. And as I told this story, uh, the uh, my therapist, a tear kind of trickled down his face. Mm-hmm. And my very first thought as a, as a clever <laughs> graduate student was, whoa, this guy's got some serious father issues. <laughs> <laughs> this is triggering his own material. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, um, uh, but you know, I didn't say that. I just kept telling mm-hmm. my story and, and mm-hmm. it was as if, my therapist's tears started to co-mingle with years of tears that I had shed longing for my father to be present in my life and not being there. And, um, and then I started to cry myself. And then practically every week for a year, whenever I went into therapy, I just wept openly and 
Mm. And there was so much pain was healed in in mm. in that time. But the really the amazing thing was what opened that door, which I had closed. You know, I more or less you know swore to myself I would never cry again over this thing. You know. But what opened the door was a silent moment of emotional resonance. Mm -hmm. You know, like Dan Siegel talks about feeling felt, that it, it, it triggered its own um, healing. It, at the time, I didn't know what it was, but I just know it was very healing. And that eventually led to other things, um, mindfulness practice. But really, I kind of landed when I learned about compassion mm -hmm. and the mindfulness you know is all about non-duality but what i needed was a more explicit um uh, dose of warmth in it in order to really heal and grow one additional thought or question just about mindfulness before we move on to some other topics here that's sort of occurred to me recently which is that we very much espouse the values of mindfulness on this podcast and, of course, in Rick's work in general. Uh, it's a topic near and dear to our hearts. But I was sort of wondering recently, is it possible for a person to be, quote-unquote, too mindful? Um, to give a, a discrete example of this, it's great to be mindful in a vacuum, but to someone whose experiences have been pretty traumatic, particularly somebody who's interested in diagnosing those traumatic experiences in a therapeutic setting, um, being mindful of their internal experience in that moment could be extremely uncomfortable, if not even painful and or traumatic itself. So, you know, to give an even kind of an extreme metaphor, I, I don't want to be particularly mindful when I'm in the middle of a surgical procedure of what my body's going through. So are there risks in mindfulness? And are there things that somebody has to bring to the practice of mindfulness in order to support them when dealing with painfully with when dealing with potentially challenging experiences? Yeah. Um, so what you're saying really points to the definition of mindfulness. If we look at mindfulness as simply awareness, mm -hmm. uh, the answer is yes, you can mm -hmm. be too aware of things such as trauma and become non-functional. Um, but when you think of what is mindfulness, it's really a kind of loving, compassionate, spacious awareness. Mm. You're not going to be overwhelmed with trauma if it is, in fact, awareness which is also loving and spacious and compassionate. In other words, the problem with awareness of trauma is that it lacks compassion, is that it lacks mm -hmm. spaciousness, mm -hmm. it lacks loving kindness. Because when we're traumatized, those qualities go right out the window. And this actually is the reason why I've spent the last 12 years pretty focused on, um, on uh, compassion training. Because as a clinician, there are so many experiences that we have that um, are uh, just really hard to bear and definitely hard to hold in mindful awareness unless we inject a lot of intentional uh, compassion in, for ourselves in the moment of holding that experience. And when we do that, we can, in fact, become mindful. So 
in my view, mindfulness and compassion are, you know, BFF, you know, they're best friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But in the, in the introduction of the, of secular contemplative practice and wisdom from the East, uh, for the first 35 years, it, we've mostly had, or at least 30 years, we've mostly had, um, been focusing on awareness, but not quite the loving and compassionate side of awareness. In other words, the the attitudinal and affective sides of compassion have been mm -hmm. somewhat given short shrift. We've yeah. been a little heavy on the wisdom tradition and not enough, not heavy enough on the compassion tradition. So this is now changing, and, and it's changing in a big way. In other words, all over the world, uh, people who have been practicing secular mindfulness are... Um, uh, very, very interested in compassion training for this reason, because it actually fosters and facilitates mindfulness when in, caught in the grip of intense and disturbing emotions, such as shame and grief and despair yeah. and so forth. Chris, I want to use this as a transition to the topic of self-compassion, which you're one of the great authorities on, and, and this seems like such a natural transition there. And I, I, on the way into that transition, I just want to offer a metaphor that I've come to see, which is that um, practice broadly, personal growth practice, psychotherapeutic practice, spiritual practice, coping practice, is like a three-legged stool. And the three legs are in Pali, the language of early Buddhism that you know, and the words sound good, so I'll say them, metta, sati, and bhavana. In other words, heart, loving kindness, compassion, self-compassion, courage, uh, sati, mindfulness, awareness, steadiness of mind, and bhavana, which is to say learning, growing, healing, developing, cultivation through that process. And I think of those as three legs that work together. I think some people's uh, stool of practice is more like a pogo stick. They've got one leg, boing, they have great mindfulness, but their heart is cold, or they've got tons of heart, but they're not learning very much from their experiences, et cetera, et cetera. So it's in that frame that maybe we could talk about uh, the integration of these in self-compassion practice. And uh, I wonder first if you could define self-compassion, including its major elements as you see it, and then tell us why you think self-compassion is important. Thank you. I'll do that in, in just one second. I just wanted to say for our listeners that the third leg, bhavana, is really a beautiful contribution which you mm -hmm. have made, which has also made its way into our eight-week training program, which is mm -hmm. that we really need to linger with our experiences and we need to learn from them. And if we don't actually, in other words, what good is all this practice if we're not learning anything? Right. From states to traits. Yeah, states to traits. And what it what does it take to actually learn? And so that really has opened my eyes, Rick. And mm, thank you. Appreciate, you know, looking at those, looking at practice and learning as equivalent to uh, compassion and, and mindful awareness. That's great. Thank, thank you. you. Um, so the question was, what is self-compassion in the context of those three things? So, um, so self-compassion is a concept and it is a practice. So the bhavana part would be the, the practice part, but it, it, um, but the other two legs, um, mindfulness and so how did you describe them sort of? Oh, I don't want to uh, force you into this frame here. I just wanted to say in passing that I think if we step back and look at practice, 
we really see that it has three these three elements in it. And for many of us, there when you look at it this way, you could see immediately, oh, there's one that would be good to develop. Uh, for example, but self compassion itself seems like um, a combination of mindfulness, but tons of heart and a response to suffering. Absolutely, yeah. So self compassion. Um, I mean, an informal definition is is uh, giving yourself the same kindness and understanding as you would uh, somebody whom you really care about. But there's understanding and there's kindness. And in the three-part, three-component model of Kristen Neff, the sort of scientific operational definition, we have mindfulness, we have common humanity, and we have kindness. Mm -hmm. So mindfulness is really important for um, the cultivation of uh, self-compassion. Uh, By the way, those three components just viscerally can be restated as loving, connected presence. Presence mm -hmm. is the mindfulness part. Connected is the common humanity, and loving is the kindness part. So that sense of loving, connected presence. But um, we can really only be compassionate when we recognize suffering. So if uh, you know, you're walking down the street and you're too busy and there's somebody in pain next to you, you won't see them. Or maybe you'll see them and you'll have what they call cognitive awareness, but you won't feel them. You know, you won't have the subjective, the empathic reaction. So all of this is part of mindfulness. It's, it's a kind of a visceral awareness of things. That's essential for compassion to arise. And when it arises... Uh, it always has a, a quality of care in it, caring. But what's interesting, and Kristen Neff is in particular is working on this now, caring can have a yin or a yang aspect. A yin aspect would mean there's a certain measure of uh, comforting and soothing and validating. But there's also yang aspects to the care of compassion and self-compassion. And that's um, more in the area of protecting providing and motivating ourselves to do hard things. So is it any less compassionate for a firefighter to run into a burning building to save someone as it is for a mother to soothe a child who has the flu? Hmm. They both share the quality of care. So compassion is a caring response when we are aware of suffering. But the third component is in some ways the most subtle, but it's also, in my view, one of the most um, important aspects, and this is common humanity. Mm. When we're compassionate, we feel the other person's suffering as our own. That's empathy. Um, but it's full of kindness and, and warmth and love, really. Uh, so there's a wonderful mixture in compassion of this sense of just like me, but also... Uh, a, a quality of warmth. And in our mindfulness and compassion practice in the West, when we practice, we really give short shrift to the common humanity part, to the community part, you know, to the sense of we-ness part, to the actual embodied in the world non-duality, which is, which is how are we Together, can you feel me? Can I feel you? Do I know you? And so forth. So long-winded way of answering is... 
is that these three components are really important, but the most subtle and I think the most important one is, uh, is a common humanity aspect. So I want to touch on something that you sort of referenced a moment ago with this sort of yin-yang feature to self-compassion and how the firefighter can just be as compassionate as the mother caring for their child. Um, I think that we do have a cultural conception of self-compassion as sort of a quote-unquote soft emotion. Uh, to be very heteronormative here, and we tend to gender it as being very feminine. Um, and there are many people who, as people who were raised inside of a more masculine tradition that don't necessarily resonate with that because they came up in with an energy of keep a stiff upper lip and just kind of push it down. And if you feel pain, you're weak and so on and so on and so on. Um, personally, I think you can very much be a soft and compassionate person and still very much be a traditionally masculine individual if that matters to you. And Personally, I think that that kind of binary is itself sort of fundamentally silly. That being said, I think you also sort of have to meet people where they are. And there are a lot of people who were really raised inside of that tradition. And that binary is extremely important to them. So if you're working with somebody who was raised inside of that tradition, somebody who is uncomfortable with accepting their own pain and therefore applying compassion to it, how would you go through that process with them? How would you um, loosen somebody from that teeth gritting, for lack of a better way of putting it? Yeah. I, again, you ask great questions, Forrest. Thank you. For, <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for that one as well. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I, both Chris and I like to say that really what we're looking for is a nice yin-yang balance, you know? Mm. Uh, uh, so what inevitably happens with self-compassion training is the yin is what gets women through the door, but once they're through the door, they often need and love yang, you know? And hashtag me too is, is all yang. It's about protecting and providing. Mm. And men, what often gets them through the door, and again, this is traditional male role men. That's why we, by the way, the reason we call it yin and yang is, is because we are talking about qualities rather than genderized roles. And it seems yeah. it works way better. But it is true that men often come through the, uh, don't come to self-compassion training because compassion is always associated with nurturing rather yeah. than with these yang qualities of protecting, providing, and motivating. Um, that said... Um, if you ask men who they admire the most, they do admire yin-yang people. Like if you ask military people, um, and uh, a colleague of mine who's at the VA told me this, who do you admire the most? Um, they admire leaders who are courageous and kind. Mm. You know, if your commanding officer is courageous and kind, you will follow them anywhere. So um, men too, men, uh, men do really appreciate both and they appreciate the, the combination. Sometimes we just need to look a little further and we will see that we need both. We need yeah. yang for to be in the world and we need yin to be in connection. And uh, hmm. when one without the other doesn't work, it's almost like a 
person who's on on the front or in a military campaign and never comes home. Mm-hmm. It's not sustainable. Yeah, I'm to to kind of investigate this for a second longer here because I think it's really interesting. I'm I'm thinking inside of my own experience of interactions with both you know male and female friends uh, who are not very receptive to their own suffering on one level or another. And in these interactions, it may be all well and good to say, you know, to for them to have a broad conception of their need for more yin in their life, if you will. But in terms of their actual practice, of their actual lived experience, it's not necessarily coming through. And I don't know if this was true in your own life, is, is speaking with the experience that you had with the, the therapist that you gave earlier. I don't know if that blockage for the acceptance of suffering was around yin and yang, or if it was around something else entirely. But I'm just imagining somebody who really has a tough time sort of touching their own interior. And what are some of the things either um, casually, if you're in conversation with that person, with a person in your life, or in an actual practice setting, you would do to kind of help them access that? Yeah, so I actually, I never uh, reflected on that experience from the perspective of yin and yang, but I think what you're saying is spot on, uh, Forrest, Mm. and that is, I'm not sure if my therapist was a woman, whether it would have had as big an impact on me. Mm -hmm. The fact that it was a man, i.e. a a person with a body similar to my own, who opened the door to my yin side, and prior to that, I was doing traditional male role things, which is... I mean, I distinctly remember as a child when I was 10 years old, I was crying for one reason or the other. I was pushing my bike up a steep hill, and I remember telling myself, swearing to myself, that I will never cry again. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's a profound experience. That's a formative experience on a deep level. Yeah, because it was so shaming. Mm. It was so shaming. And, and, uh, you know, this is... We... Uh, the American Psychological Association just came up with guidelines for men and boys. And, you know, one of the main things they said is that the traditional male role is closely associated with psychopathology and Mm. stress and suffering, you know. And so it is a problem that we have, and I'm glad we're looking at it. But your question was, um, how does one approach... uh, how does one kind of invite a Yang-oriented person for whom uh, repressing emotions and, and uh, you know, getting angry rather than sad and so forth? Yeah. How do you invite them into self-compassion practice? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, this is a really important subject, um, and I have we have a team of about 15 or 20 people who are exploring this through the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. But there are a few general things. One thing is it's about languaging, you know. Mm. Um, self-compassion really is a strength. It's a significant inner strength. It's um, practically all the research is points to self-compassion as a resource for emotional uh, resilience. The, the title of Rick's book. <laughs> <laughs> Very much. <laughs> and um, and uh, so to frame self-compassion not as something weak but as a source of strength another thing to do is to uh, talk about the 
what we call myths or myth under, misunderstandings, misconceptions of self-compassion, that such that not only is self-compassion weak, people think, but they also think it's demotivating. They think it's like self-pity, and they think it's going to make them selfish and narcissistic, and it's also self-indulgent. These are all the opposite of what it is. So we address the myths. We uh, talk about the research, and we... Uh, reframe self-compassion as what it is, which is, in fact, an inner uh, strength. Um, but you know what the most important thing is to uh, have, uh, if it's men you want to get through the door, you have other men in the room. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. So, Chris, <clears throat> we've covered a lot of ground here, and I thought it would be really good, before we're done, for sure, if you could walk people through almost uh, a recipe for doing self-compassion on yourself, on the fly, in the trenches, in the middle of your own real life? Like if you're going to do a sort of step by step by step, what are the keys for people to do on their own? And then we'll get into your training program with Krista and mindful self-compassion. The quintessential self-compassion question is, what do you need? Hmm. If somebody asks us that in a genuine way, it's so touching. You know, they look at us and say, what do you need? But when we suffer or fail or feel inadequate, we don't ask ourselves that question. So to have the capacity to ask yourself the question, what do I need, opens the door to self-compassion. The question itself is an act of self-compassion. Now, when you say to somebody, what do they need, especially when they're upset, the answer is, I don't know. Hmm. So then it can be broken down a little bit along those yin-yang lines. In other words, what do you need to uh, physically soothe yourself? What do you need to emotionally comfort yourself? What do you need to validate yourself or hold yourself? What do you need to, pr to protect yourself right now? You know, maybe you need to protect yourself. What do you need? Or what, what do you need to provide for yourself emotionally or physically? Or what do you, what do you need um, to motivate yourself? So that's important. But often, what do I need? It, the, the question is, what do I need to feel safe? Mm. What do I need to feel safe? So to, divert, to be a little more specific about the questions. But sometimes people can't answer that either. And then the question is, how do I care for myself already? To know what I do physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, you know, for myself. And then to do that in a moment of need is, in fact, an act of self-compassion. That's called behavioral self-compassion. So that's the simplest way to approach this. Another way to approach it is, in exactly the same situation as I am in now, if, if I had a friend in that situation and I were to speak to that person heart to heart for just a few seconds, or if I were to do something for that person, what would I do? What would I say? Can I do that for myself? <clears throat> so that's you know based on that informal definition of self-compassion, treating yourself with the same kindness and understanding as you treat somebody else. This is actually a good framework or self-compassion. And that could lead to, you know, loving kindness phrase practice. It can, it, it's uh, any number of opportunities. 
the mindful self-compassion training program has um, seven core meditations, 20 informal practices and 14 exercises, all of which contain elements that people can bring to their own lives in the form of practice or bhavana, as you said, you know, things people can do to actually make self-compassion a uh, move it from a state to a trait. How do you see the process um, occurring in which people move from state to trait? In other words, from having experiences of self-compassion uh, into developing more of a trait-like quality or an inclination toward self-compassion? Uh, yeah, well, uh, practice. <laughs> <laughs> a great answer. Uh, really remembering. You know, we need to remember to practice. We, we've asked people at the end of the eight-week training program, you know, like months or years later, what did you learn? And they say mm -hmm. two things. I, the, the course gave me permission to be kind mm -hmm. to myself because mm -hmm. usually we don't. And it's really just like a simple U-turn, mm -hmm. compassion for other, compassion. So it gave me permission and yeah. it was a reminder. So they say permission and reminder. So those things are necessary for practice. Mm -hmm. but, enough, but a really important part of practice, you know, sometimes the idea is, oh, just more practice. You need more practice. But the, another important point, and I, I think you might appreciate this, Rick, um, is it's not just more practice, but how we motivate ourselves to practice. In other words, the string of the guitar can't be too tight or too loose. We don't want to get into excessive striving, and we also don't want to get yeah. into self-indulgence like, screw it, I don't need to practice. Yeah. Can we, in fact, motivate ourselves with compassion to practice self-compassion? Right. In other words, asking ourselves in a deep way, what are our core values and so forth. But the most important thing for any extended practice is that people actually enjoy it. Yeah. yeah, They have to like it. It has to be self-reinforcing. And mm -hmm. the way we actually learn to enjoy it is by practicing in daily life first, noticing that not practicing is more stressful and uncomfortable than practicing. In other words, when I had that experience at my wife's dinner, if I did not practice self-compassion, it would have been a mess. And we, she would have been mad at me at, all night long, you know. And right. rightly so. But so self-compassion makes our lives easier. It makes our lives happier. And when we notice that, th then it becomes self-reinforcing. So a lot of your new work uh, around self-compassion is focused on self-compassion as an antidote to shame. And I was wondering, for starters, why that was and why self-compassion and shame have a relationship with one another at all. Yeah, thanks. Well, this is a subject for a whole other hour, but I can kind of. <laughs> yeah, we could we could do the cursory here, and maybe we'll do another one sometime. Give a nutshell, uh, uh, sort of comment. <clears throat> so, um, so my own personal interest comes from being kind of a shame-based guy, you know. Mm -hmm. But but what I discovered actually is that shame is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It has so many different faces, and we. We just don't um, usually see it. But when we see it, our lives become a lot easier. Um, so shame is kind of 
the stickiness that makes anger last longer than it should, grief last longer than it should, um, uh, anxiety, you know. I got interested in self-compassion in the first place because of public speaking anxiety that wouldn't quit. And um, because I was looking at it as an anxiety disorder, but it was actually a shame disorder. Mm. And when I learned self-compassion, ironically, it addressed the shame without even knowing it was shame. But in hindsight, I could see, oh, it was a shame problem. So that's when I got interested in like, okay, so what about shame? Not just public speaking anxiety, shame, but shame in general. What's the relationship between public, uh, between uh, shame and, and self-compassion? And in my view, uh, self-compassion is at its best as an antidote to shame. I think there mm -hmm. is nothing which is as powerful a way of making shame workable as uh, self-compassion. And so basically, sometimes we need to hold ourselves before we can hold our experience. This is the argument for self-compassion and mindfulness. But when self-compassion, I mean, shame is a very curious emotion. It's a social emotion. It's the idea that I'm imagining that you are imagining something bad about me. And um, uh, what self-compassion, self-compassion gives people a sense of self-worth that is on an entirely different footing. Most of our self-worth comes in part from where we stand on the pecking order, like how I compare to others. In other words, it's external, it's contingent, it's, it's based on social support. Self-worth from self-compassion is an inner resource such that when you suffer, when you fail, when you feel inadequate, by being kind to yourself, you actually can build yourself up as if somebody came into your life and held you lovingly and said, you're a good person, I love you, this is going to pass. We can do this for ourselves. So the bottom line is that shame is a serious challenge to our self-worth. But when we learn the capacity for self-compassion, we learn to hold ourselves in our glorious, imperfect humanity. When I, after I learned self-compassion, when I started to do public speaking, I knew, and this was new to me, that if everybody in the room thought I was an idiot, you know, stupid, fraudulent, incompetent, whatever it may be, I knew it would not destroy me. It would not kill me because I had learned the inner capacity to hold myself, to respect myself, to love myself, to talk myself through it. I, this is a resource which ultimately allows us to uh, dismantle shame. And if we look at, at, at all the faces of shame in ordinary life, we would see that learning some self-compassion is, is very cost-effective because by learning to work with shame, a mountain of suffering in our lives just begins to wither. So that's why the next book project I have is, is shame, is self-compassion and shame, because I think there's, there are a few things that, that I can offer that could have as great an impact uh, in the lives of others. How do you think, uh, Chris, that um, self-compassion for shame could actually reduce aggressiveness between people? 
Yeah, so if you think of why we're aggressive with others, you know, people don't, in their heart of hearts, want to be aggressive. They're, it's it's what, what we call a defense. It's a reaction. We're trying to get something or protect ourselves against something, you know. And, uh, and often it's shame, you know, people who are, you know, chronically angry, they are feel, they're not very feeling very happy about themselves, you know. In fact, they are probably engulfed in shame, which has, you know, the form of, well, I'm being disrespected or I'm not being appreciated or, you know, whatever it may be. So they're just mad all the time. And I have to say, for many people, this is a really good thing because otherwise they would just, you know, be crushed and wither and die, you know. Sometimes being angry is the healthiest darn thing you can do. I see this all the time with people who are depressed, you know, when they get angry, they get mobilized, you know. Yeah. And um, so anger is, is, I believe, defense. Aggressiveness is defense. But against what? I think it's a defense against shame. Now, we're just to, to be angry all the time is not sustainable because it's a constant stress state. But if we can see the function of anger in our lives, we can see the shame behind it, and we could hold ourselves and comfort ourselves and soothe ourselves and basically respect ourselves more through self-compassion, then we're not going to, the hands that are always reaching out to somebody else, give me this, give me that, I need this, I need that, can turn toward ourselves and we can give that to ourselves. And frankly, mm. then we're off the hook, we can rest, and then our partners can also rest and we don't have to be so aggressive. It's so ironic in a beautiful way that self-compassion, which is self-directed, actually is a major fuel for the undoing of selfishness and narcissism and self-absorption. Yeah, that's the irony. We get, it, we get into, uh, exactly, thank you for that. Well, I learned it from you. <laughs> the research shows that very clearly, Rick, that yeah. um, as we grow in self-compassion, we also grow in compassion for others. And also uh, the correlational research, people who are high in self-compassion, they're also higher in compassion for others. Romantic partners of people who are high in self-compassion are described by their partners as more uh, collaborative, less aggressive, apropos mm -hmm. what you just said, and uh, you know, more willing to compromise and more compassionate. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful note to kind of bring that part of things to a to a wrap on here. But I do wonder because we've been very uh, investigatory of your personal life here, so we might as well do a little bit more investigation. Um, if you could kind of go back and take all of the learning that you've done over this process of learning about self compassion and mindfulness and shame, and talk to some version of your younger self at some earlier point in your life, what would you really want to share with that person? Wow, what a beautiful question. So, Rick, you and your wife did a very good job with... Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Chris. Thank, Thank you. you. I would be very proud if I were... <laughs> I am, um, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, so <laughs> first of all, um, what, what you said uh, speaks to a whole area of self-compassion practice, which... Mm which is just now starting to happen, which is to bring compassion to parts of ourselves. Mm, yeah. And um, when we have a memory that troubles us and we can, and we can just turn around and 
you know, find ourselves at that age and give that one compassion, it is, it is a profoundly therapeutic mm-hmm. thing to do. So the question was, uh, what, from the position of self-compassion, could I identify a younger version of me and what would I say to that person? Yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> when I was wandering around India, hmm. I had actually gone to India because I had been rejected twice, two consecutive years uh, to get into clinical psychology graduate school. Mm. The fools, the fools. I just want to say they were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And I was confused, you know, because this was such a calling for me and I didn't know why would this ever happen? Would it? And, you know, this, this was a really good hearted, but confused and lonely guy. And I would say to that young, long-haired vagabond, you are a good man, Mm. and you will make a difference in this life. Do not worry. That's what I would say. And uh, I think if that boy heard this, uh, I would have spared myself a lot of unnecessary (laughs) worry Mm. and doubt. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's a really, really beautiful note to just kind of bring our conversation here to a close on. Chris, thank you so much for doing this. It was really wonderful and a really thorough investigation of a lot of, I think, very powerful uh, topics and ideas here. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, you guys. And you you certainly brought the conversation to a lot of places uh, that I have not gone to in a uh, public interview. So I'm grateful for that. Thank you very much. Yeah. And good on you for do- going there. Courage. All right. Well, thank you so much, Chris. So to give a recap of today's episode, today we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Chris Germer, a clinical psychologist and lecturer on psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School. Chris is also the co-founder of the Mindful Self-Compassion Program with Dr. Kristen Neff. We began by exploring Chris's personal history with self-compassion, including a life-changing experience he had in therapy. We then spoke for a while about both the power and perils of mindfulness, including some of the strengths a person must develop alongside mindfulness in order to apply it skillfully. We then moved on to the aspects of self-compassion, some of the ways it's been misunderstood, and how self-compassion can have both soft, internalized aspects and powerful, active elements. It doesn't have to be simply an internal investigation, it can be a motivating force to create action outside of ourselves in the world. We concluded the episode by talking about how self-compassion can serve as an antidote to shame, and Chris really shared some powerful material there. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you did, please leave a rating and review of the podcast and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. It really does help us out. Until next time, thanks for listening.